Um, yeah, most definitely be continuing to pray for those in Kentucky. Um, you know, those that went down there the past two days. Um, we'll have more information. Uh, I'm sure that I may have heard through them, um, but we'll get out some more information on some specific needs. Um, sounds like I think we'll probably be going back down there periodically over the next few months, um, if the Lord permits. Uh, but there'll be more info on that. And so just have that in your prayers on uh, meeting needs, uh, those down there and, and the connections that, that they made that, that, uh, through them going down there uh, this past weekend. So, um, so we left off Acts 16, verse 25. Uh, the Philippian jail, jailer, um, we could probably spend the next six months here on this passage, but um, we won't do that. Uh, we're going to try to get through it today. All right, verse 25. I'll go ahead and read through 40. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailers awoke and saw the prison doors open, they, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had, had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly with his whole household because he had believed in God. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrate have sent, the, have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they, became, and they came and, and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and left. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you unworthy, humble, to read your word, to understand your word through the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that your holiness is proclaimed and your truth and the gospel, your truth and your, and your son Jesus is proclaimed this morning. That hearts are changed, sanctified, and renewed, regenerated. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this, man, this is such a great study on the subject of salvation. All right, so we're going to go through like five different uh, areas here. So the first one, like a preparation for salvation. So when I, when I say this, salvation itself is, is instantaneous. All right, so when it, when it comes to like, the, like human terms, there's no process that, that the humans can do in the flesh for salvation. All right, but we sometimes see a process when it comes to the divine process of salvation. 
Right? There's nothing, though, that we can do as humans in that process of salvation. So we'll see the, pro- the preparation for salvation. We'll see the cry for salvation, a proclamation for salvation, and then the fruits of salvation, and then the effects of salvation upon the world. So we're going to go through these things. We see all this right here in this, in this passage, and it's so awesome. So let's jump right in here. The, the, I'll go ahead and read the, the first couple verses here again. Um, uh, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came an earthquake, so the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. All right, so there, here we see this preparation for salvation unfolding. And it's, it's, it's fourfold. So we'll, so we'll hit on like four subjects here, or four areas here of this preparation of salvation that we see in this, in this passage. So here there was a, a strong witness of the disciples through this difficult situation that they find themselves in. So Paul and Silas, they've been stripped beaten with rods in prison and put in chains. Man, their backs were lacerated, bloody, swollen, just mess of human flesh. Man, I can I always think back on like, man, I wonder what Paul and, and Silas, especially Paul, like what he looked like by the end of his life. I mean, he had to have looked like, like hamburger. I mean, he took so many beatings and, and lashes and throughout his life. And, and so we can only imagine the, the excruciating pain that these guys are in at this very moment. So, but note here, sitting there in that dark, smelly, rat, roach-infested dungeon, they bore such a strong witness, a strong testimony to the beautiful, wonderful grace of God. And they, they the first thing, they were praying, man, they said they were praying. They prayed, and they probably asked God for what every dedicated servant typically asks for. They prayed to God for strength to help them through the situation, and then forgiveness of their persecutors, most likely. We don't know for sure, but we're just hitting on, and we think about like Stephen in the midst of him getting stoned. He's like, man, forgive them. Forgive them for, they don't even know what they're doing, right? So we're just drawing on what they're probably praying for. You know, forgive them for, for, for what they're doing. They don't even know. Praying for using that suffering to reach others, to draw people to Christ through that suffering. And we see that they were praising God, singing hymns, praising to him. And again, it's likely they were praising for that gift of salvation. It's only through Christ. The privilege of suffering for his namesake and his presence and strength through all that suffering. So make note here, like, on, man, this all took place at midnight. All took place at midnight. They sang so loud that the other prisoners could hear them. They were completely unashamed. You know, Romans 1.16, completely unashamed of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.8, it's a reminder there of this. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord for me who is in prison, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's Paul writing back to Timothy. The point of this is, is man, the, such, man, the strong testimony they bore through this, man, such a difficult terrible situation. The gift of faith the Lord Jesus has given them was such a strong witness that prepared the heart of the unsaved for the gospel, prepared them to hear the gospel. And note, Paul later, he he wrote back to the Philippians, so he wrote back to the Philippian church about this, this difficult yet such a simple concept. I mean, so difficult, but yet such a simple concept. And he told them to rejoice in the Lord always. 
said it twice, Philippians 4.4 and Philippians 3.1. Rejoice in the Lord always, always bearing witness to the Lord. Rejoicing in, in the good times, rejoicing in the bad times and suffering. Rejoice always. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And it sounds like that's what they were doing, right? And they were singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They couldn't stop. Even in the midst of what they faced, being beaten their flesh lacerated open, thrown into a dungeon, they couldn't stop. They could not stop speaking about the things in which they've seen and heard, which what Christ has done. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our momentary light afflictions is working out for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Man. According to Paul, that stuff was minute. Light affliction, he called it. Light affliction. And it was nothing. Because his mind was set on above. Set on eternal things. Man, that stuff was nothing to him. Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will recount what he has done for my soul. Can't help it to recount the things in which God has done for my soul. Second thing, there was a movement of God. There was a move. I mean, all of this was a movement of God, right? Which was, man, it was at the core of all this. Man, it was his divine hand working in all things for his purpose, right? In this instance, God moved through an earthquake, through an earthquake. In other instances, he will move in other ways. You know, God can move upon a person's soul through a happening in nature, like I said, we see here through tornadoes, things like that, through a tragedy, sense of lack or need, a, through reading of Scripture, through a miracle, through an event in a person's life, through thinking about life and death, through illnesses, sickness, and an innumerable list of ways that all climax to the preaching, hearing, and believing in the gospel. He uses all these things to draw people to himself. So the point, is that, point of it is this, is that God has prepared events to prepare man's soul for salvation. One of the major reasons for the earthquake was to stir the jailer to cry for salvation, to call out for salvation. It was part of the father drawing the jailer to his son, to Jesus. Which leads to the, 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 leads to the third thing here, which was that desperate cry, that desperate cry of a man. In the case of the jailer, man, he felt that he faced a completely hopeless situation. And he did, on human terms. In his eyes, it was a completely helpless situation. The earthquake had, had sprung open the jail doors, allowing all the prisoners to escape. In his mind, that's what he thought happened. He had fallen asleep while he was on duty. You know, the, the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape was death. Read about in Acts 12.19, when Peter was divinely pulled out of prison. It says, when Herod had searched for him and had, found, had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to be executed. The punishment for that was execution. The jailer, man, he was completely helpless and hopeless at this point. He drew his sword, ready to kill himself. He knew that, that man, the terrible shame and punishment awaiting him and the shame that would come upon his family as well due to him letting the prisoners escape. Therefore, he, man, he prepared to go ahead and just 
kill himself. Take the lesser of the pain, lesser of the punishment. Make it look like one of the prisoners killed him on their way out to alleviate the shame of his family, to make it not look like he was derelict of duty. Circumstances differ, but every person experiences serious problems in this life that causes fear, causes helplessness, causes hopelessness, and insecurities at some point, in some fashion, on some level. In every instance of serious need, a person either does one of two things. They turn to God or they'll turn away. One of two things happen. A person either looks to God for help or approaches some humanistic answer for what they're going through. The point is, helplessness and hopelessness are used by God to prepare the human soul for salvation. And again, a reminder of John 644, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The fourth thing here, there was a call of hope by the believer. This was Paul and Silas. There was a call for hope. So the jailer, I mean, he was standing out in that hallway or that corridor in the light. There may be kind of like a know exactly what it looked like, but I kind of envision like he was just standing there and you kind of see the light behind. And, you know, he was just kind of like a silhouette standing there. And, and, and Paul in the, in the dark dungeon cell you know, saw him and, and shouted out to the jailer, that, to, man, don't kill yourself. Don't do it. Probably no greater human voice or human call was ever heard by that jailer because it was the instrument of God's effectual irresistible calling on his life. This is the picture of the human soul sensing hopelessness and being ushered into salvation by the divine God. The believer, again here being Paul, he cries out, proclaiming hope to the helpless and the hopeless. Proclaiming that to the world, to the jailer. The cry of hope is, is part of the preparation for salvation. A part so, man, so desperately needed. Without it, man, the, the world, I mean, it hurts. And it, and it, it ruins itself and dies in this helpless, depraved, sinful state. And this is the gravity of the Great Commission. This is the weight of the Great Commission. the going and preaching the gospel to all creation, making disciples of all nations. It's the gravity of it. We cannot be comfortable sitting behind the walls of our own comfort and pride, saying, well, man, that's not for me. That's just, that's not for me. Doing that, that's not for me. That's for, the, that's for somebody else. It's for those who are like, more saved. It's so important to stand firm in and stand up for the truth in Christ. And that's part of it. I'm not saying everybody's called to knock on doors and tell everybody person they walk past about, you know, Jesus, tell them about Jesus. But in some form or fashion, everybody's called to bring about the gospel to those who Christ has put in front of them. Acts twenty two fifteen says, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. That, that verse 
is heavy because it says you will bear witness for him of all, to all men of what you have seen or heard. Are you bearing witness to what he has done? Or maybe you just haven't seen or heard anything. I know that sounds, I know that might hurt. But it's the truth. Titus 2.15. These things speak and exhort and reprove all, with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Standing firm in the truth of Christ. Speaking them and exhorting them and proving them with all authority. And then 1 Peter 3.15. Gotta stand firm on this one. This is such a beautiful verse. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and fear. Yet with gentleness and with fear. That's, man. Are you able to give an account for the hope in which you say is in you? Something we talked about the other day um, at Bible study, and, and, and it just has been on my mind a lot. And, and just we talked about it, and in, in even in going into like talking, a like gospel sharing, but um, but it came up in the conversation of of those who who say, "Man, I just I don't. I'm a Christian, but I don't like to go to church. I don't like like I'm not a." I don't go to church. I don't like to worship with other believers. I don't like to read my Bible. I don't, I don't like to do any of that stuff. And then the, the follow-up question then should be, then wh- what do you think heaven will be like? What is your why for why you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because I think there's twofold to this, and I, we talked about it before when it, when it comes to like the, the, the washing down of what hell really truly is. Because we see like through uh, TV and movies and things like that, that hell is like really not that bad. It's just this place where like there's just a party going all the time and, and this dude with horns and a tail kind of runs things, and he's not that great of a person, but he's not that bad. And compared to, you know, things are horrible here too, so, you know, it's just, and, you know, all my friends will be there and kind of, you know, it's not that bad. And that's what, like, cinema paints that picture and ingrains into, into, into people's minds what hell looks like, right? Which... Satan don't want to be there either. It is not anything like that. It says constant torment, brimstone and fire, gnashing of teeth. But on the opposite side of it, we have the delusion of what heaven would be like. Many seek heaven and not actually the prize, which is Christ. Many seek the prize in their mind of prize is heaven because of what the delusion of heaven is. Of all my wildest dreams will come true. Sitting on the beach, hanging out. Because that's what I want to do now, so that's what I'll get to do in heaven. I'll have this, you know, big giant house and I'll get to hunt monster deer all the time. I just threw that one in for myself. <laughs> that's not right. That's, that's a delusion that, that has been implemented by Satan into this world. The prize is not heaven. The prize is Christ, and heaven is not going to look like that. It's constant, perfect worship. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's going to be awesome. This is just like a 
picture of it, what we do on Sundays, and it's not even going to come close to what it would be like in heaven. And it's going to be eternal, perfect worship, just like hell is going to be eternal, perfect wrath. I don't even imagine what that's going to be like. So, uh, man, couldn't even imagine what that would be like, perfect wrath. But I can't wait to find out what perfect worship is going to be like. So the second thing here. So first, that preparation for salvation. And now this cry for salvation that we see here. uh, Verse 29 and 30. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there was an immediate and reverent search for salvation. There was an immediate reverent search for salvation. The jailer called for a light, sprang in, came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas. Man, the stress is immediate reverence for the God of these men. Immediate reverence. Their God foreordained the earthquake, and he had saved him from being executed by keeping the prisoners all in their cell. And he had heard, assuming that he had heard, Paul and Silas preaching about salvation throughout the city. That is, that, that, that people could be forgiven of their sins and delivered from sin and death. And since being in jail, he had heard the two preachers praying for strength and deliverance, for the forgiveness and the salvation of their, their persecutors, which included himself. And, and he, he feared, man, he, he should have feared. He feared the God who answered a man's prayer so quickly and who had such enormous power to bring about that earthquake and release the chains of all the prisoners. So in his mind, he must waste no time whatsoever in seeking this God and having him forgive his sins or face the judgment of such God. The perfect judgment and the perfect wrath of God, man, is surely something to be feared. Surely something to be feared. I believe, and again, I believe it is so beyond our finite minds to even comprehend what perfect wrath and punishment looks like. But again, I, mean, I, I pray that none of us want any part in that. See, fear is it's a legitimate reason for seeking salvation despite how minimizing it is of it by, by so many. So many minimize that. But it is a legitimate reason for seeking salvation. Look at Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke 150 says, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Acts 10.35 but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. Isaiah 8, 13. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. and He shall be your fear and he shall be your cause of trembling. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We should fear and tremble when it comes to coming before God. It changes, it's different after salvation. 
a regenerated heart. You know, there's there's the, the, the fear changes in that, you know, no longer fear of the condemnation of, of, of hell and, and, and the wrath. But there's still always the fear of, of the chastising and the, and the punishment of the Father because just like any good father, he's still going to punish any of his, his, his children who do anything that goes against what he wants and desires. So there's still that, but it changes for sure. Second thing in that cry out, there was this urgent cry for salvation. And note, the man knew who to go to. He had heard Paul and Silas praying and singing about salvation. He knew that salvation was what he needed. He knew it was what he needed. That he desperately needed to know this God of theirs. That he and everyone else needed to be cared for by a God who looks after his people as he did for Paul and Silas. The jailer cried out. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The disciples were God's instruments for proclaiming salvation. And they were tired, sore, and it was the wee hours of the morning. How easy would it have been to be like, eh, can we just wait till morning? We're tired. We want to get some sleep. They didn't. They didn't didn't put things off until the morning. They didn't wait. They took them right then and there, and they met that man's knees right then and there. Psalms 85, 7. Show us, O Yahweh, your loving kindness and give us your salvation. Psalm 119, 41. May your loving kindnesses of also come to me, O Yahweh, your salvation according to your word. And the jailer was calling out for salvation. God had prepared his heart for salvation as he was drawing him to the Son. Third thing, belief. Man, to believe. Two critical points we're going we're gonna to hit on here in, in belief. So verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And then the necessity of believing, man, it said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's the answer. That's the answer to the jailer's question. It's important to to know what was not said. No, Paul, he didn't say, I'll say, well, man, you've you've done all this wrong stuff in your life. Go go write it and then just do the best you can from now on. Do that. That's how you be saved. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say, go to work for God, put your, your hand to the plow, labor and toil for God and mankind, and you'll be saved. Didn't say that. He most definitely didn't say, man, don't trouble yourself. Life is too short. Live, eat, drink, and be merry. Didn't say that, right? John 3, 15, 16. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall have eternal life. Note where this belief comes from. Look in John, John 5, 21. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. To whomever He wishes. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, 
but is passed out of death into life. Passed out of death into life. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Completely dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5 of Ephesians 2. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Man, this gives credence to our depravity and therefore where belief comes from. Before one is spiritually born again, they are dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. They were dead in trespasses. Dead in transgressions. Dead. Vadi Baca made the analogy in a sermon, in an analogy that I'm sure many have heard before, that, that God is just throwing life preservers, just tossing them out, just waiting on people to grab a hold of those life preservers. So it's a false analogy, and he's made, making this clear. That's not what God is doing. He's not tossing out life preservers and just sitting back and just waiting, just seeing what will happen. He's not doing that. Because it's plain and clear here that we are dead in our, transgre- in our transgressions and sins. He makes the point that we should all make the point to realize that men, dead men don't grab. We are dead. We don't grab. We don't reach out for life preservers. Dead, drowned at the bottom of the ocean. God grabs them, pulls them up, and breathes life into them. Breathes life into those dry bones. He's not waiting for people, not whimsically floating around searching hearts to see who's ready to accept. It's not what he's doing. He's taking people and pulling them up and passing them from death into life. He doesn't need us to do that. In the belief that humanity has just like some sort of residue left in them in order to reach out, in order to conjure up the ability to stir the spirit, to, to, to regenerate our hearts. And it's a heresy that's been plagued throughout church since the beginning. Since the beginning of history, beginning of church history, it has been constantly dealt with, but yet is the most, most held belief in Christian churches today. But yet it has been deemed heresy throughout all of church history over and over again over and over again. Clean from early 400 century. Guy by the name of Pelagius started teaching that very same heresy that man had that residue left in them that they could call out to God and, and, and stir the Spirit to, to answer them and come in and regenerate so that they could conjure the belief in and of themselves and get God to act upon their life. 
he was unanimously, his, his beliefs, his system was, was unanimously voted as heresy in the Council of Orange back in the 400th century. Continuously throughout history, it happened again and again and again. It keeps springing up. The Synod of Dort, the exact same thing. Unanimously voted against Arminianism. Arminius was claimed as heresy. Exact same beliefs. But we walk into most churches today and they'll preach that exact thing. That God's throwing life preservers, waiting on man to reach out. God doesn't need to wait on us. He's taking dead men and making them alive. And that is by the grace of God. And that is pure, unadulterated grace. And it's so beautiful. Second thing, the necessity of, of understanding here the word of the Lord. Man, the man in his household were utterly ignorant of Christ up until this point. Apparently, they, they had never heard anything about him aside from the things that Paul and Silas were, were preaching in the streets. Paul and Silas had to instruct the jailer and his household in the basics of salvation as they spoke the word of the Lord to him together and their entire household. They're here in 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And they were being obedient to the command of Matthew 16, 15. And he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. They're going and preaching the gospel to all creation. 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses is just an awesome awesome passage of the gospel. It's just packed right there. First four verses of, of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaim as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that, first, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Preaching Christ crucified. It's simple. Don't have to get caught up on, on lofty words of wisdom. Simply Christ, what he has done on the cross, was buried and rose again. Fourth thing is the fruits of salvation. And the fruits of salvation, the fruits are, man, they're clearly seen here. And the first thing, baptism. And you see this outward proclamation of this inward change. Second thing, uh, there was the, the, the privilege of ministering to fellow believers. The jailer brought Paul and Silas into his house, washed their wounds, and then fed them. So they housed them, washed his wounds, fed them. And what he was doing here, of course, was, was showing his appreciation for what God had done for him. God had came in and saved his life. He was showing that appreciation for what God has done by just turning around and, and, and caring for these other believers. And here's a picture of this man. A believer cannot sit still and ignore people around him. I mean, not if they have desperate needs. I mean, if people have desperate needs around, they cannot sit still. Well, God had helped him so much, man, he could not shut his eyes to those who were in need. And Paul and Silas there were, were in need. Third thing, there was joy of rejoicing. And there's so much joy in rejoicing here with, with the jailer. And all of them were involved. And God had saved him and his entire family. 
and save them all from the grips of sin. And Jonathan Edwards, he puts it this way, they were, they were dangling on by that slender thread over the pits of hell. Man, he could not help but experience the joy of rejoicing. 1 Peter 1.8 says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of, and full of glory. Man, that is, that is a beautiful, beautiful, ver, ver, beautiful verse. Man, he's saying that, man, you see all the things that he's doing. You may not visibly see him, but man, you rejoice. You rejoice until the time you, you do physically see him because you see his glory manifested in all the things that are going on around. Fifth and last thing here, the effects of salvation upon the world. So verse 35, And now the day came that the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison, and now they, have, they, send, they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and they left. Man, the world here, you know, those in Philippi, had a sense of guilt over the injustice that had been done. It was caused by the apparent movement here of God in the earthquake. And as usual, you know, the usual thing that happens in a natural disaster, again, that most men, they, they, they turn their minds towards God. Turn their minds towards God, and these men had just committed this serious evil act. They were the judges and rulers that had allowed themselves to be swayed by the influential and in the, in the wealthy of this city. They had punished and imprisoned two men without a trial, and their conscience were, were bothered by that. So they decided to do what they could to right their wrong. And so they sought to release the men. So the man, the world feared and they were humbled. Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen. So that was against the law of, of for a Roman citizen to be denied a trial and to be flogged. And so, I mean, if these rollers were to be reported back to Rome, it would have been bad for them. They would be removed from the office and, and likely tried for treason. And Philippi itself would have likely been removed as a Roman colony. So the point is this, that God was using these natural events that he preordained to strike fear and humility into the city of Philippi. And God... God would have the church of Philippi left alone so it could grow and become one of the great ministering churches of this first century. Again, this is a, a, a stark reminder of Matthew 10, 28. You know, do not fear those who kill the body but are, are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and in hell. So the disciples were released and delivered by the hand of God. They went to the house of Lydia. Note there it says, uh, it says they. Switched back to, to, to that third person pronoun. Instead of we, noting that Luke stayed behind the writer of, of Acts. So the first fruits in, in Europe were born. The slave girl, 
the jailer, his household, Lydia, her household, likely Clement that we read about in, in Philippians, Erodia and Sintichi we read about in Philippians. I mean, it was like an instant church planted in Philippi. The first fruits here in Europe. And God is able to deliver, man, deliver the believers through all trials. And he will deliver and work all things out for good until he is ready to take the believer on home into heaven. And we see that here with Paul, with all those in Christ. In doing that, he will use the believer as a vessel to bring about his purpose. Isaiah 42.7 says, To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. Man, in this situation here, and it was not Paul, it was not Silas who was the one who was in prison. It's not Paul and Silas who was in prison. And it was the jailer. The jailer in this story was the one who was in prison. The jailer in his household. Paul and Silas were free. They were free in Christ. The jailer, his household, man, they were, they were in bondage and captive. They were in captivity to their sins and their transgressions. Dead and in need of a Savior. I'll close with this beautiful reminder. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I pray we, we gather strength from this story of, of, of Paul and Silas. That we are reminded to constantly stand firm in the faith and to rejoice always in your son Jesus, in the good and in the bad. In knowing that you use us as the vessels to, to, to carry out your gospel. That we are to be ready in and out of season. Ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. That we are prepared always to do that. Lord, we pray for encouragement, strength from your Spirit in times of difficulty. Your Spirit always reminds us that, that you are with us no matter what. And if we find ourselves in those dark times, And we have to rejoice. To rejoice always in your son Jesus. Amen.